This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Welcome to our Late Boomers podcast. Today, we are honored to have two guests, Zach Marion and Emma Cragen. They are the co-founders of Zema Productions, a Los Angeles-based production company. Together and separately, they have created and produced many projects. Emma is a proud member of the International Coalition of Female Cinematographers. Also, Emma is my daughter, and Zach is her fiancé. They're just about to release their first feature-length film, a documentary conceived and directed by Zach and shot by Emma, who's the cinematographer for the company. The film is called Where She Lies. Zach, let's hear a little about your background and how you and Emma got together to form this company. You were both graduates of UCLA Film School when you met, right? Correct. Um, I've actually done two tours of film school, so I was a film production major in undergrad, which I did uh, at Minnesota State University, Moorhead, uh, in Moorhead, Minnesota. I worked out there professionally for uh, close to five years, and I wanted to further my education, so I applied to UCLA Film School and was fortunate enough to get in, and that's where I met my partner in business and life, and not yet crime, but maybe someday, uh, Emma Cragen. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, was that, that, I think that was the whole question, how I ended up meeting Emma. Yeah, that was about it. Yeah, it sounds right to me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. We got to hear Emma's voice. Emma, you were named by Variety, the Hollywood trade paper, as one of 110 students to watch. How did you get started in cinematography and what drew you to it? So I guess... What drew me to cinematography originally, well, originally I wanted to direct and then I realized that actually I kind of preferred dealing more with the aesthetic um, instead in lieu of performance. Um, She also decided that she didn't really like working with actors. That was was the real reason. (laughs) Yes, Um, but I first started doing cinema. I had been, I guess, making films as a kid and um, I started shooting at uh, Cal TV while I was at UC Berkeley, which is, um, the online, um, TV station there. And I kind of realized that that was something I was interested in, ultimately decided to pursue cinematography in the master's program at UCLA. Um, and that kind of, ultimately my final year at UCLA, they offered me a really exciting opportunity to go film in Antarctica, um, which, Um, presented then the opportunity to be featured in Variety as a result of the project that I was shooting there with an organization that deals in um, 
environmental awareness um, called 2041. So that was kind of, that's kind of, an, I guess, an abbreviated from <laughs> there to here. Oh, good. I have a question for both of you. What is it about each of you? What professional quality about yourselves or your work that drew you together to want to be the partners in the business? Wow, going deep right away, Mary. <laughs> um, do you want me to start with that question? Yeah, you can start. You know, I would say every business relationship is a marriage. In a sense, you have to fully trust the other person. Um, so, you know, it was, it, it's really wonderful that we both um, work in the same industry. And my focus is obviously directing, her focus is cinematography. So uh, what's funny is that when we got to film school, I was assigned to be her cinematographer. So I had to shoot her films first. Uh, and then I don't know if I sought you out as a cinematographer for my first film. Um, well, we were initially assigned the first year independently um, to be in two separate production cycles in the same um, group. Um, so we kind of worked together before we were in a relationship. So it's the thing that people ask is kind of like, how do you manage that? And I think because we worked together first, like we were already kind of used to that as being part of the rapport. So I think that made it an easier transition. And I think it helps um, with being with like communication and being in a relationship too. Yeah. And, and uh, in terms of your question and traits, um, you know, I would say we both are pretty level headed, but you know, I, I can't say for myself what, you know, maybe the traits that you value about me, but I know when we're in a work setting together, um, Emma's always very level headed, always very cool, calm, collected. And she has the most amazing ability to cut through all of the noise of what's happening on set. And as you both know, there is a lot of noise on set. There's a lot of people all doing their jobs, running around, trying to get things done. Um, and so for me, I really appreciate that when we're working together, you know, Emma can cut right through all that noise and just focus on what, what is the story communicating? How do we capture it in a way that uh, complements that communication? And uh, ultimately that leads to the best kind of storytelling. Uh, yeah. Great. Anything to add, Emma, to that? Um, I guess I've lost track of what the original question was, but um, yeah, I mean, working with Zach is, is good because I think he compliments my, um, I guess the, the flip side of all the things he mentioned is that I, I tend to be um, internally very anxious. And I think that he tends to exert a exert an evenness that is actually what he's feeling on the inside. And I think that counters a little bit of my internal frenzy. <laughs> Oh, beautiful. <laughs> great answers. Yeah. Zach, tell us how you decided to make this documentary, how you got the idea and what it took to get it going. So as I briefly mentioned, I went to school in northern Minnesota and I had I had been uh, I'm trying to I'm, I'm going to truncate this story a little bit because it, it, it could go back a number of years, but we'll We'll start with the fact that I was working for a production company where 
part of my job, in addition to being a writer producer, was I did some TV development duties. So the company I worked for was this just fantastic company called Video Art Studios in Fargo, North Dakota. And they had a history of programming with cable networks. They had a show uh, funny and I mean, I don't know if it's funny, but um, kind of coincidentally was about home births. Or not, uh, well, let me back that up. It was about midwives and midwifery clinic. And when I came along, they were working on other programming to capitalize on the success of their show. And I uh, kind of ran with a, an idea about uh, interesting home births. So we ended up selling a special about interesting home births called uh, Births Beyond Belief. That was the name that the executive producer decided on. And it sent me to three different mothers who were in the final stages of uh, you know, their pregnancy and were planning these really beautiful, interesting home births. So I captured that. And after we did that special, which I produced uh, the company, uh, the heads of the company said, what do you want to do next? And I had been interested in uh, kind of like mystery crime material. So after the after this special on home births, the company asked me what else I was interested in. And I told them that, um, you know, I'd always been interested in sort of mystery stories. And I'm not exactly sure. Oh, I had been working on an independent study in college that had involved a deathbed confession. And I had this idea for a series that would feature deathbed confessions. Um, specifically, I wanted to pitch it to the Investigation Discovery Network. And basically, the premise of the show is uh, some kind of crime happens, the police think they've solved it, or, or the case gets cold, and then you have a deathbed confession happen you know, 30 years later, and you have to reopen the case. So it's kind of a natural beginning, middle, and end format. And um, I ended up pitching it to Investigation Discovery. They really liked it. And they liked it so much that they asked me to put together six seasons worth of episodes. So then I spent the next two months researching. And I should say six seasons is uh, six 10-episode seasons. So I had to find 60 Whoa, deathbed. Um, that's infection. a ton. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they really want to know that the, that the show, um, if they're going to invest in it, it has legs. So I spent a couple months putting together 60 episodes. And one of, the, one of the ideas I discovered was a woman by the name of Peggy Phillips. And it, it, the story, the premise of the story existed as this one page Associated Press article. And the details were as follows. A woman named Peggy Phillips living in Chattanooga, Tennessee, gave birth in 1962 out of wedlock and amid conflicting reports about her baby's welfare, ultimately she is told by the hospital that her baby uh, was a stillborn. And she went about her life and, um, and you know, got over the loss and, and kept on uh, living her life. And 33 years later, her mother on her deathbed confessed that the baby never died. And so again, I thought, oh my God, this is an incredible premise. Um, how could this have happened? How did this happen? I wanted, I had so many questions. And at the time, there was no other mention of Peggy on the internet. 
I did keyword searches, I looked for information, but I was moving so quickly with the series of deathbed confessions, I didn't really have time to get into one story. I had I placed this story in, you know, higher up in the in the show, uh, the episode guide that we ended up presenting, but I couldn't really get into the story. Ultimately, investigation discovery passed on the series. It went to a final green light me meeting and they went with a different series, um, you know, which tends to, to happen. Um, and I went about my life too. I didn't, you know, I, I sort of had other work got in the way and I ended up applying to UCLA, went to UCLA, went through the program, met Emma. We started this uh, great company, Zama Productions. And we got to a place in our business where, you know, we had um, the resources, the camera, the know-how, the education to really do broadcast quality work. Um, and I ended up actually, this is, a, this is a funny part of the story, is Ken Cragen, um, you know, the illustrious Ken Cragen, uh, you know, he, I went to him and I said, I've got this great series idea about Deathbed Confession. He said, well, I know Tom Beers. Uh, Tom Beers is a super successful television producer and director. Uh, he, he's well known for Deadliest Catch and Ice Road Truckers. He does a lot of, you know, I think he's known for sort of testosterone programming for big cable networks, but he's also just, you know, he ran Fremantle Media in North America for a long time. He just, he has one of the most impressive uh, television producer in, in terms of the reality space track records. So I ended up meeting with him. I told him about the concept that I had tried to get this show made. And he said, well, why don't you write a book about it? And I thought, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. Maybe I could do an anthology book. Maybe someone will buy the rights to it. Maybe I could retain the rights and turn it into a series. So I decided to, to return to the idea. And of course, the, the one idea that I thought was the most interesting was Peggy Phillips and her story. Um, so I set out to write this book. And the first thing I did was uh, I ended up using a service, I think it was peoplesmart.com or something like that for, for you know, wannabe private investigators. And it no longer exists. I think it's been absorbed by another one of those services. And it gave me the name, a, a woman by the name of Peggy Phillips in the right age demo, still living in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I had a physical address. So I sat down, I wrote a letter put it in an envelope, sent it off. And three days later, my phone rings with a Chattanooga number. I pick it up and it's Peggy. Wow. And, <laughs> yeah. And from that very first phone call, I learned that she had never found her daughter and she still believed that she was out there somewhere. And our relationship quickly progressed because in order to understand Peggy's life, you really have to start from the beginning. And it is such an interesting, stranger than fiction, twisting and turning life story um, that it takes a long time to put all the pieces together. And what became a phone call, you know, one phone call turned into two, and then it became regular phone calls. And sometimes the calls would last for hours on end. And before I knew it, I had developed this uh, friendship with this, this stranger to me and I had formed almost a moral obligation that if anybody was gonna help her solve the mystery that had haunted her entire life, 
it was going to end up being me. Um, and it, and of course I was telling Emma about the story. I was telling my good friends about the story. When we go hiking, I go, Oh my God, this woman and this, and then this happened and then this happened. And, you know, it's kind of like that, that, that I was pitching and I didn't even know what I was telling friends about the story. And they were like, whatever happened with what's happening with Peggy, what's going on with Peggy. And it became this natural process for me that I could not turn away from the story. I couldn't put it down. Um, and I would tell Emma about it. And we just decided in time, why don't we, why don't we, you know, see where this goes? Why don't we start documenting the investigation, what you're doing and telling the story of her life. And that, that's kind of where it where it started. Such Is an that, organically created uh, thing. So organic. Yeah. Um, Zach, can you tell us any anecdotes or, or stories about your relationship, your friendship with Peggy? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, most people haven't you know, seen the film yet who are listening to this. And um, obviously I encourage you to go check out the film, which we could talk about where to see it. You know, one anecdote that comes to mind, which is, which the film at first doesn't seem like it's about this, but it, it certainly becomes about this. The film presents itself as a mystery story, a crime story, really. It has that Certainly we marketed the film that way, but as you watch the film, you start to, you start to watch my relationship with Peggy progress in an interesting way as well. And so there is a scene in the movie that is her birthday party. Um, and we were just with, with Peggy and I want to say offhandedly, she mentioned, oh, it's my birthday on Thursday. And she hadn't said anything before. And so the crew who was just Emma, myself and Suze Curtis, who pulled double duty on the film, not only did she write the film, but she was also the, the sound production sound recordist. Um, we said, we got to do something for her. And so we got her a cake and we got her a present and made lunch. And, and uh, you know, she, she, told us something like she hadn't celebrated her birthday with anyone in the last 10 years. Um, and it was just such a touching day. Uh, and, and you just, you never, you never really think like we take for granted that there's people to celebrate our birthday with. Um, and she, she didn't have that. And so I think that was, you know, one, one anecdote that, that was very, um, you know, just sweet. Lovely. Very emotional. Emma, what was the most challenging scene to put on video for this movie? And were there any real difficulties as you shot the film? Um, the most challenging scene was definitely um, with Suzanne, this woman who um, was alleged in town that uh, Suzanne could be Peggy's daughter. Um, and Suzanne was a little bit um, difficult to track down for a number of reasons. I don't want to get too much into her psyche yet, but um, we had to do a bit of negotiating with S Suzanne to film her. And ultimately the circumstances that we were brought into were not entirely safe. Um, so prior to that, we kind of had to figure out 
you know, we didn't want to bring too much gear. And so how could we capture what we needed to capture um, effectively and have it still match, you know, the quality that we wanted um, with minimal gear. And then we didn't know what the location was going to look like. Um, Ultimately, we decided it was best to opt to film it um, outside of the location in lieu of actually going inside because there were potential other obstacles um, to going inside. Um, So, you know, there was just a lot of like negotiation for safety, which I think is often the case with documentary, Um, this type of documentary where people don't necessarily know you're coming and, you know, the circumstances change. Um, So I think that was probably the biggest challenge was just trying to safely, quickly, um, and effectively capture that whole scene. Um, You're also being very kind to me because I was pushing the crew that we had come all this way to do this interview and they were very much pushing back on not doing the interview. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that's fueled by um, general like female um, conscientiousness of safety and male perhaps lack thereof. Like understanding what that entails. Um, So, you know, I think that was a lot of where we were operating from was just safety. Mm -hmm. I want to add one interesting tidbit about this is that you find things when you're editing that you didn't intend to find. And I, uh, you'll, in the film, I am end up going into this uh, place, I will say, where you're, you're hearing what I'm saying as I negotiate with Suzanne and somebody she's with to do an interview with her. You can hear my wireless mic being picked up on the camera and Emma's back in, the, in our car waiting outside. But what she didn't realize is that her on-camera mic was on as well. And her and Sue's are sitting in the car talking about me and about my choices. And I remember, in, you know, she was probably at like five or six in the morning when I was editing, because that's usually where the, the creation of the film actually took place or sending our, our notes to the editor, Rachel Pearl, um, who was just fabulous on the film. Uh, and I hear this conversation and Emma says to Suze, you know, Zach is so trusting. He trusts everybody. And, and I remember you know, it was neither a, a dig or a, uh, or a compliment to me necessarily, but it made me realize that in many ways, my psyche was aligned with the main character, Peggy. Um, and it's probably why I felt so drawn to her and to make an entire, to f- make a film about her. That is just so interesting. It's quite an interesting observation that you can see that. Yeah. yeah. Zach, can you explain about buying the film before November 10th? And if our listeners hear this episode before the date, um, is buying it the best way to watch it? Or are some of the services streaming it or renting it as well? Yeah, so the film was uh, is, is being distributed by Gravitas Ventures, a really wonderful company. Um, and... The, it's available on demand through the internet and cable. So if you want to watch it through your cable provider, you can, uh, on November 10th, you can start to, to, to do a pay-per-view uh, viewing of it. And 
if you want to watch it on the internet, it's streaming on all the major platforms. Um, primarily, we're, we're asking people if they have the capability to watch it on Apple TV. Um, Apple TV is a little, it's going through a transition. iTunes actually got absorbed by Apple TV. Um, and so if you have a Roku or an Amazon Fire Stick or a smart TV or an Xbox or a PlayStation um, or an Apple TV, you can watch the film on, on Apple TV. Now, the way to, to, the easiest way to get to where you need to go to, to, to buy the film is to go to whereshelies.com. It lists all of the different platforms where the film is available and it'll take you right to the purchase page where you can pre-order the film right now. Uh, so all the links are at whereshelies.com. And, uh, and then it'll be available to watch on November 10th. So if you pre-order it now, you can watch it on November 10th. Great. And then you, you yeah. own it, you know, in perpetuity after that. Great. Can I say a simple version of that? Sure. Yeah. Um, right now it's available to pre-order through Apple TV, which was formerly iTunes, and it'll be available to stream on November 10th. And starting November 10th, if you visit whereshelies.com, it'll have a list of all the different providers that where you'll be able to rent or stream the film um, or purchase the film rather to stream um, thereafter. Great. Well said. And I found the score of the film to be extremely well done and just the right emotional tone. Zach, how did you find this composer? So Emma and I took a trip to New Orleans and uh, we were walking through, what's the main square there? Lafayette Square? I don't know. I think that's what it's called. I think, I think we, were, we were walking through Lafayette Square and... Uh, there was somebody playing like a, a steel drum with an amp. And I thought it was so beautiful and appropriate. And I didn't, I just took, took out my phone and I recorded a few seconds of it. It was really haunting, hauntingly beautiful. And I got a recommendation for, through a friend for Jamie Thierman, who's the, the composer. And she and I had maybe one brief meeting and I sent her the, the, the piece of re the recording um, and started sending her scenes. And that was it. I basically gave her the film and I said, I'm doing, I'm, you know, I'm putting it together this way. Do what you think is, you know, working for you. And she started sending me little samples. I don't think I really ever gave her any big notes or even medium notes or even small notes. I mean, she just, it just came out of her and it was like perfect. It was the, it was one of the best collaborations I've ever had. That's fabulous. She was the one that, she was the one that was, that played in the New Orleans Square? No, so that was just a street performer. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was just a street performer. Um, but I will say that at the end of the film, um, uh, there is a there is a piece of there's a piece of music that has lyrics, a very well known piece of music, and Jamie is actually the vocalist on that track as well. And so that's gorgeous too. He but does we won't perform. give that away. Emma, okay. what would you like our listeners to watch for in this production? To watch for, oh wow, um, you know, special scene or a a, a video picture that you thought came out perfect or something like that 
without giving away um, the plot, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of a good example. I think everything we shot in the cemetery was very cinematic and it was really interesting to watch um, the seasons change because we shot first in, the, in December, January um, in Chattanooga. And then when we next came back, it was June, June, July, somewhere in there. And then we shot again in December. And so we had kind of the shifting of the seasons and the cemetery reflected all of that. I mean, Chattanooga has seasons unlike here in LA, but um, you know, it had the leaves or it had, which was kind of a, a, a stark contrast to the green um, when, when um, there's a scene you know, that takes place in the cemetery and it looks distinctly different than some of the other shots we captured. Um, I think that really, that imagery kind of captures a lot, um, a lot about a lot of like metaphor is can be seen through the cemetery. Beautiful. Zach, tell us a little bit about the location where you shot this. Were there challenges associated with it? Um, yeah, so the, the film primarily takes place in Chattanooga. And I want to say Chattanooga is a really lovely city. Uh, very beautiful, and we got a chance to explore some of the the downtown area. Um, where we were was a little more on the outskirts of the city center, so we were kind of in the smaller towns around Chattanooga, um, and and that really is present in the film. You have a lot of sort of uh, thick vegetation and um, and winding roads and old cemeteries um, in, you know, in terms of, of challenges strictly related to the setting. Uh, I wouldn't say there was a ton, uh, sometimes it was a little humid, but, um, but in terms of the setting was pretty friendly, I would say. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> Emma, what advice would you give young women who would like to pursue cinematography? I guess um, to just not think of it, I, I don't know, for me, I, I like to think of things as a little less like polarized. It's like, you know, there will come this day when it's when people aren't identified as being like female cinematographers or female directors or female producers, and they'll just be producers. And so I think that's kind of an important mentality to keep, like, because I think if you identify, I think there are certainly benefits now because people are seeking out more representation, which is important and now more than ever. Um, but I think that to not feel burdened, I guess, by that, by identifying yourself in that way, I think to instead just think this is what I'm doing and I'm uninhibited by the fact that, you know, I may be female or I may be a person of color or whatever the like the differing quotient is I think you know to just like continue doing it as if like what's the difference I am a, I am a DP or I am whatever the department head may be good advice yeah Zach from the time you got the idea and made the first inquiry to the finished product with music and everything how long did where she lies take to make and how did you come up with the title and the poster <laughs> a couple questions um, there <laughs> yeah in terms of the actual process of making the film i wrote the letter to peggy in the summer of 2016 
the film was done, 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 um, maybe in February of this year. Emma's, Emma's, okay, July. <laughs> July. Yeah. It felt done. With the score? Because yeah, with the, the score, score. Yeah, July. Locked. So locked four the... years. Four years. Yeah. yeah wow. Years. Excluding, excluding the kind of initial discovery of the story. Yeah, that happened in 2009. Mm-hmm. So it's been ruminating for a long time. Um, which I, I think about often. I think how interesting that is that that Peggy was like just out there in the world and I was out there in the world and then timing sunk up where we like two planets ended up, you know, in each other's orbit for a little bit of time. Yeah. Our two guests today have been the Hollywood power couple, Zach Marion and Emma Cragen, or as they are more commonly known to their clients, Zemma. We know our listeners will want to watch this documentary as soon as possible. Please visit whereshelies.com to find the ways to watch the film. Please pre-order it before November 10th, if you can, on Apple TV and iTunes. Visit Emma and Zach at their website, zemmaproductions.com, or on Instagram, at zemmaproductions. Any parting info for our listeners, Zach or Emma? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, one thing about this film is that it, I feel like right now in the world that we're living in, one of the biggest issues we have is that nobody can decide what the truth is. And if we can't find a common ground, it's hard for people to come together. And this film is really a allegory for that struggle and that crisis of of what everybody's going through um and so it it's an opportunity i think for people to reflect on their own relationship with the truth uh in their own life um but beyond that i just want to say thank you thank you so much for for having emma and i on it's been a pleasure thank you thank you and thanks again you guys Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. 
so, here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.